You've heard the scripture reading already. Thank you for those who made that come alive. Um, interesting that there was some humor in that. It's not really a funny passage, as you know, um, but the contextualization of it, of making it come alive through acting, brought some of those uh, realities out. Um, today, well, today I don't know why I'm so emotional, but I am, so there it is. Um, today I'm doing a Reformation service. Next Sunday is much closer to Reformation Day, but I couldn't make the schedule work, so um, I wanted to do this sermon because it's about Sola Scriptura, it's about the Bible and how we interpret it. I thought that'd be handy since Sola Scriptura is a Reformation theme, but one Sunday off is pretty close, so we're not going to worry about that. Sola Scriptura means by Scripture alone. Um, and um, I don't know that anybody in the church argues about that. Yet I'm pretty sure, at least I'm feeling, that's probably what I'm feeling, that I'm going to push some of your boundaries on this. Um, and at the same time, my mind tells me I'm not telling you anything that hasn't been taught for 400 years in the Reformed tradition. So there's something messy about that that I'm not sure what to do with. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're looking at this week on at how the Bible works. So Understanding My Strange Bible is the Tim Mackey podcast that I've been listening to and has been inspiring me. And I, I love the title because Tim is an incredibly brilliant man who um, loves Jesus, um, wears Jesus on his sleeve. And that's not how that saying goes, is it? He wears his heart on his sleeve and his passion for Jesus. He doesn't wear Jesus on his sleeve. Um, but also recognizes in his passion that Whenever he reads a passage, he goes, what's that? Right? And Job 1 is one of those. That's what we're going to unpack. And he's very helpful. That's why I keep recommending Tim Mackey things, especially his Bible Project stuff. Videos that tell you in five minutes what an entire book of the Bible means. It's brilliant stuff. So there's my ad for Tim. And then um, Find It Fast in the Bible. That's this little book here. Um, it's not enough that I think what happened was folks are bringing stuff for me to bring to St. Catharines this evening as we feed people on the street. And someone thought, why don't we just throw some books in there for Eric while we're at it? He won't notice because his, his office is a disaster. And so there's a couple of boxes of books. And one of it is, has this title, Find It Fast in the Bible. And it's this really handy book that tells you whatever your theme is, which passages to read. And I want to say this carefully because somebody put this together and it has a place but I find these books horribly dangerous, that unless you already know the whole Bible and you're just saying, yeah, there's a passage, I know it because I've read this book and I'm connected with it and I want to find that topic, this will help you get there. But I'm kind of scared because this author also wrote the complete book of Bible answers. Well, God help us if he has all of those already. I'm, I'd be impressed, right? So that idea that, and that's, and I point this out because you, his editor told him to make this title for a very good reason. That sells, right? What do we want from the Bible? Fast answers, right? And what I want to teach you today is, sorry, not the way it works. It's a complicated book. 
I've given you the short answer. If you want just to know what the Bible's about, it's about God's love for you, how you should love him and love each other. But as we've said in a couple of sermons already, that's simple to understand those words, not easy to live out. And the book itself is a little more complicated than we often think. That's what we're going to talk about today. So I call this, the longer version of the title is The Bible on the Bible's Terms, right? So at no point am I telling you that the Bible is not the authoritative word of God. But it is so authoritative that it gets to tell you how to read it. And what I want to suggest to you is that oftentimes we have taken our North American 2023 or whatever year you're you're thinking of um, mindset and decided that's how we get to read the Bible. Well, you're no longer under the authority of the Bible if you don't let the Bible tell you or suggest to you or guide you in how to read it. That's kind of what we're working with today. And for starters, it's Job, not Job. Ruth Ann wrote me an email this week that said, good for, good for your job. And I said, which part of my job? She said, your sermon, Job. Oh, yeah, right. Same word, different, or same spelling, different pronunciation. And if you're listening to any Bema, you know that none of us pronounce any name in the Bible correctly, right? If you listen to Bema, it's Shmuel, not Samuel. It's Abraham, not Abraham, and so on and so forth. All that's okay. Just say job if you want to for this guy's name, right? But understand that most of us can't even say the words of the names of the Bible properly, so maybe we need to lean into, there's a bit of complication in this book that we can own and work through and lean into as we still find its truth helpful for our lives. So the Reformation was about putting the Word of God in the hands of the people. And I'll say this carefully, but sometimes I'm scared that it wasn't the best idea all the time, that we just let everybody figure out for themselves what this believes, what this means, right? It's also called nowadays the Internet, right? The Internet on the Bible. Just Google what the answer is, but how do you know where that came from, right? And so this question of how do we, as a community, and I think that's kind of our role here today, lean into how do we read the Bible on its terms for its purposes so that it's God's truth we get, not something we've kind of projected in. So I'm going to give you, I didn't even count them because there's lots, a whole bunch of different things you need to think about when you read the Bible, and we'll use Job 1 and 2 and a little more of the book to, to illustrate those things. First, you need to know the structure of the book. You need to know what's happening. That's again, Tim Mackey's How to Read the Bible Stuff. He has some, the Bible Project has something on every book of the Bible. So before you read chapter three of Genesis, make sure you know what's going on in Genesis because that chapter three happens in a particular place, right? And has a particular structure to it. Likewise, each, um, the book of Job, quite simple. There's the setup story. We heard chapter one, chapter two carries on that story. It, it's a narrative. It's what's going on for Job. It, it's um, it's totally story, right? And then 3 through 41 are incredibly long poems that most people scan over to get to the end, if I'm going to be honest on your behalf, right? Very complex language. In fact, Job's probably one of the most complex books to translate in the Bible. Um, don't know why, it just is. So there's that poetic dialogue, Job talking to his friends, and then it ends with the story. So there's that setup story, the summary story, and then all that meaty, weighty, hard stuff about suffering in the middle. All right, and then there's parallels. Chapter one says, and he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. Chapter 42, the last chapter says, he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels. So if you're quick at math, you realize that's twice as much 
right? That simple way of saying God doubly blessed Job at the end of his life. Cool, simple, nicely structured. But then there's this. In chapter one, he had how many daughters? How many sons? You did good because I asked you that backwards. It comes in, right? And at the end of the story, he has seven new sons and three new daughters. I come from a family of 10, at least with my step-siblings. We have six boys and four girls. I'm not sure I'd be okay with the fact if my mom was happy that if we all died, she'd get replacement kids, right? That's, that feels, right? You, you get that that's a problem? And that's important, because if the Bible makes you wonder and feel, don't ignore it and try to explain it away. I think that's part of the problem of our world right now. We, we take the Bible and we're so convinced it's right that we gloss over some things that should be making us go, wait a minute, right? There should be a wait a minute there. Let's just leave it at that for now. I'll do more on that a little later. All right, then history. When did, when did this happen? In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. That was when? It doesn't say. If you have a study Bible, the study Bible, we'll try and figure that out because study Bibles always in their introductions have date and all that kind of stuff. I don't know why they don't use this wonderful answer. We don't know. We don't know. All right? And that's okay. The Bible can be true without us knowing exactly when it happened in history. The Bible can also be true if this story was fabricated in this fashion to make a very specific point without this ever having been a historical event. And I know that one stretches us. We have a hard time with that. Um, but think of it this way. There, there's all kinds of styles in the Bible. Jesus told parables. Did the story of the Good Samaritan happen in history? Or did Jesus tell the story of the Good Samaritan in history? Right? We do this all the time, and it's perfectly okay. And it's quite possible. We don't know, but all we know about Job is that he lived in us once upon a time. And once you get to once upon a time, you kind of know what kind of story you're in, right? And that's okay. Be really clear. However you understand Job, its message is incredibly powerful, right? And it's deep, and it's complicated, and we're going to do all that hard stuff next week. All right, content. I uh, read a book about the Bible by uh, Rob Bell. Um, in which he says, always remember this, somebody wrote this down. And I thought, you're getting paid to write books and that's all you write? Somebody wrote this down? Why? Why did they write this line as opposed to another line? Why did they write this story as opposed to another story? In fact, the Bible, for the most part, early Bible was, was, um, was memorized and told and shared. Why did they tell the story this way? And even more importantly, why did they keep this story? Why do they keep telling this story, right? Because I've got some fun stories, and some of them I tell you probably too often, and other ones I use once and realize, yeah, that wasn't that good. I'm not doing that again, right? Why did this story stick? It's always a really good question, right? And why did they include this detail? He would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned, right? So Job... The man who lived in the Uz once upon a time 
was a very righteous man. So righteous that even if he didn't know that his kids had sinned, on the outside chance they may possibly have, he offered sacrifices for them. Pretty clear that detail's going, we need you to know this guy was above and beyond, right? Maybe even better than Greg, right? And then translation. You know that there's not a single English word in the original Bible, right? Which means some smart people, really smart people, not a job I'd want, take those words from a different world and a different culture and turn them into English. And if you want to know why there's so many different Bible translations, it's because that's, that's how many ways you can probably do this, right? Most of them have absolutely wonderful, positive intentions of what they're trying to accomplish, and yet they come up with different things. Now, this one baffles me. One day, the angels, footnote, came to, the, to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, footnote, also came. Those footnotes say, this is not the best translation, to which I always want to say, why don't you put the best translation in there? That would be helpful. There's a reason, of course. Angels, literally, is sons of God. Sons of God. That's a long way from angels. So I was thinking as our, our friends were, were presenting the, the story here, that when it says, and messengers came, the word for messenger and angel is the same, so there is a word for angel and messenger, and it's not sons of God, right? So why do they change that? So the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Hasatan came with them, the Satan, right? Most of us don't call people we know. I don't call Ruthann the Ruthann very often, right? We don't put a hard um, article in front of a name because that's not how English works. Satan means adversary or accuser, right? So probably the best understanding you can use here is, and the um, district attorney came as well, the guy who's always accusing people and trying to put them in jail. Right? That's the role of this person. Now, eventually that role was taken by the person we end up using the name Satan for and so on. So it's not a huge, horrible stretch, but you gotta wonder when you translate, there's meaning and purpose to that, right? And it shapes it. So when you read sons of God and the accuser came before God, what you should be picturing is the heavenly throne room, which is an image often used. Again, it's not a literal thing, because I don't think that's exactly how God works, right? He's spirit, and it's complicated, so we use this image to help us understand. That's good. It's a good image, right? But if it's the angels and Satan, that's a little different than the sons of God and an accuser, and that's important when we get to the content of this conversation they have, which we will soon. So now a little bit about style. There's lots of repetition in there. And so when you hear and saw, nicely done, folks, four different people get up, and all of them end with the same line, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you, you're going, wow, this sounds like my children's stories, doesn't it? Right? When you read a children's book, there's generally a refrain, right? Well, they come back to that line over and over again because they want you to see something very specific. If I'm telling history, and I tell you that four different disasters happened, and all of them happened in such a way that just one person survived who was handily able to tell the story, you'd be going, that seems a bit of a stretch, right? 
Again, this is telling us the story is formulated this way. Again, it could have happened, it could have not, but the key is it's formulated in such a way that you get something really special needs to be paid attention to here, right? Every time they say this, it's all the stuff has been wiped out. And then genre. There's different kinds of writing in the Bible. That's what genre means, right? There's prophecy, there's poetry, there's history, right? And those things aren't all the same. So my question is, is Job like John? And by John here, I mean the author of the book of Revelation. Is the book of Job like the book of Revelation? The revelation from Jesus we get in Revelation 1. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. And John says, on the Lord's day, I was caught up in the spirit, and he sees the heavenly throne room. Is that the same deal that's going on here? Well, again, if the theme is the Bible on the Bible's terms, this passage at no point suggests to us that Job or the author was caught up into the throne room. He's telling a story to get us to the point what we're going to look at next week, which is this suffering thing is something we really got to think about, and we will next week. And then interpretation. What does this sentence mean? In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I hear two things in there because I thought them both, and I'm not sure which one's right. Is it, in all this, Job did not charge God with wrongdoing, and therefore he did not sin, or is it that even though, God, even though Job did charge God with wrongdoing, he did not sin by doing so? They both make logical sense. They do in English. Find a Hebrew scholar, they will tell you if it does also in Hebrew. Beatty, that's you, I guess. You're now a resident Hebrew scholar. In all this, Job did not sit. So when you read a passage, and that's why I like it when we do it dramatically sometimes, you say the line, and I think to myself, I wouldn't have said it that way. I would have emphasized it a little bit differently. That's the beginning of interpretation, how you speak it out, how you understand it. What does it mean right on face value? Which way did he not sin? The good news is he did not sin. And of course, all this is about that big word we use, the inspiration of the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and admonishing. But how does that work? Right? Because the Bible was spoken and then written and then compiled by people. I don't think anyone's ever denied this. And somehow in that process, we trust that God used it but we also pray the prayer that Jen prayed before the scripture reading could be called the prayer of inspiration. Inspire these folks and then inspire the preacher, right? So there's a whole lot of breathing that goes on because that's what inspire means. I inspire and I expire. I inhale, I exhale, right? The inspiration is that the Holy Spirit comes inside of people and helps make happen, right? Inspiration is not that God dictated something and they wrote it down and said, now I've got it. Right? The closest we have to that would be the book of Revelation where John actually saw these things and was told, write this down. Right? Paul was writing letters to people because he's trying to run a church, and we kept those because it seemed good to us by the Holy Spirit that they were right. right? So there, there's, a, there's a process in this inspiration. Right? Don't let it be too wooden because even Jesus himself, right, was God saying, I'm going to come in human form and be God, 
And lots of people couldn't tell that Jesus was anything but a human being. He's just a carpenter from Nazareth, right? And likewise, this book, if you don't get the spirit thing, it's just another book with words on pages. And so there's a miraculous, mysterious, and complicated piece to this inspiration. Again, I'm not denying the inspiration. I'm just begging you not to make it so simple, right, that we miss the beautiful complexity of what God is calling us into in this conversation with his word. And then this one, literal truth. I just read the Bible literally. I'm not sure that's possible, to be honest with you. If what you mean by literally is I just read the words, I know exactly what it means. I've been studying this thing for years, and I know scholars who've studied it way harder than I do and are definitely much smarter than I do, and they usually end with, there's some confusion here, and we're wondering, and there's some challenge, and there's some journey. The Bible is a book that calls us into a relationship with it, right? It doesn't call us to say, just look up a passage, read those words, now you know what you need to do, right? Is Graham here this morning? Because I want to use a Graham story. Graham is here? You saw him? Graham? He's gone. Oh. Did the rest of you give me permission to tell a Graham story without his permission? (laughs) He would say yes. It was reasonably public. So he was showing us that sometimes to, um, when he doesn't know what he's supposed to read in his Bible, he'll just kind of flip it open and put his finger on the page. And I was aghast. That's horrible, Graham. I can't believe you did that. I wasn't that. If that's your only way of reading the Bible, that's not really going to get you to what the Bible's trying to teach you. If you already know the Bible and you're just not sure what you're supposed to read, it's it's like my friendly book there, right? It's a good way to to get you somewhere to start because you'll probably know if you flip to the middle of Jeremiah that you're in a prophet and you need to understand that in prophetic form, right? So this idea that I just read these words literally, right, requires that you also know all the other questions of what the world am I reading here? Right? So, this is my way of dealing with people who are too excited about literalism. If you have two hands and two eyes, you do not read the Bible literally. Right? Because Jesus said, if your hand, right hand, causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to have one hand than to go into the fires of hell with two. And if your eye causes you to sin, same deal. Right? So that would be straightforward, literal. I don't even think this through. I just read the words and do them, and nobody does that, right? Let's just be honest about that. Nobody does that, and that's good because it wasn't— the Bible's not asking you to do that, right? That's a thing that's been used, but the Bible has never been asking us to not understand. Jesus told parables. Why? So that they wouldn't understand. Strange, but that's what he says. Be perceiving but never— be seeing but never perceiving, hearing but never understanding, right? At times, Jesus intentionally gave you words that you had to stew on, right? What's a parable, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Okay. That's the whole parable. So when Jesus does those things, he's inviting us to understand this is intentionally made to make you think. This is intentionally made to make you stew and wonder, right? It was probably clear to the people then. That's why we interpret it understanding. What were they looking at? What does a mustard seed grow into? And all those kinds of questions, right? But understanding what the Bible says requires that we understand 
there's some complicatedness to this along the way. All right, the message. And I guess I should point out, I don't mean Eugene Peterson's version of the Bible called the message here, but this is why he called it the message. This is the message of the book of Job in my mind. However it comes to be, however suffering comes to be, how do we really deal, how do we deal with justice, God, and the reality of suffering, all right? So Job isn't about how many kids did he have and how blessed was he and, and what's it like to be doubly blessed at the end of your life and do replacement kids count and all those kinds of things. None of that is the point of the book. That is the context to get you to read the middle, which is actually the most important part, which is all this conversation around how do we deal with justice when there's actually suffering in the world, right? Because if you, one last point on the literal thing, um, we were with a broad family gathering this summer, and someone said they were struggling with their understanding of the Bible and so on, and I somehow said, I'm planning on preaching on Job this fall, and they said, I hate Job. Do tell. That's pretty strong. Yeah, well, God, these are now my words, gambles with Satan over Job's life, right? So when you were listening to the presentation and Satan says, I've been roaming around the world, right? And, and, and God says, hey, how about my servant Job? And I'm going, since I know where it's going, don't point at Job, leave the poor guy alone, right? And Satan says, oh yeah? Well, take all his stuff away. And I'm here, I'm, I'm totally ready, even though I've heard this story many, many times, I'm totally ready for God to go, no, no, that's mean. Oh yeah, have at it. If that doesn't shock you, You have to work on something, right? That is not meant for us to go, yeah, that's how God works. He, he just wipes people out for the fun of it just to see how strong their faith is or to build their faith, right? No. The book is not about telling us how God produces suffering. Tim Mackey in his presentation of the book says it, puts it that way. He, he presents chapter one and two and says, and now you're all going, of course, why did God do that? And you're assuming the rest of the book is going to tell us exactly why God did that. And the book does not tell us why God did that. All right? There's no such answer. So in this book, what we're going to look at next week is all the difficult things around why suffering happens in this world and how we can have a just God when there's suffering like this. Very important stuff to lean into. But the answer isn't because God on a whim gambled with Satan and thought, yeah, what the heck? Have at it, right? If that's your view of God, it's pretty hard to move into the love zone because God is very arbitrary. And that should at least make us somewhat uncomfortable, all right? Think through on those things. We'll talk about suffering, the message next week. And the summary of this sermon, last slide, by the way. The deepest re respect that we can have for the Bible is to let it guide us, including guiding us into how we are to understand each passage. All right? So if I have stretched your way of understanding how we understand the Bible, understand that I'm doing so because I think this is a deeper, healthier way to interact with the book, right? I've seen way too many dangerous things done. Well, I just read the Bible literally. Here's the line that I give you. And we're missing the fact that this is a relationship book where God, through 
thousands of years of history, continues to come to his people with an incredible story of love and invite them into that relationship, right? So this story is definitely part of that relationship, and it's a very complicated part of that relationship, and that's why it's in a setting that's pretty mysterious and strange. But come back next week in case I haven't advertised enough and hear about how God deals with suffering and justice at the same time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for coming into this world. We're not sure how much we thank you for doing it in such strange ways at times, but we recognize your love, your sacrifice, your presence. And we pray with thanks for those moments where we experience the goodness of your love and your sacrifice and your presence. And we pray also in those moments where it's scary and confusing and painful, where we don't know what the answers are, that we would hold on to trust and faith and you. Come, Lord Jesus, and meet us in those moments as only you can, we pray. In your name, amen.